glad you're with us. We are uh, continuing on in our sermon series in Romans today, and uh, looking forward to sharing what God has laid on my heart with you a little bit later on. Uh, before then, just have a number of different announcements to share with you, so I'll just get right into them. Uh, reminder to you that uh, you can still give of your tithe or offering to the church ministry. Uh, you can put a check in the mail uh, payable to Clarny Mennonite Church and postmark that to Box 969 Clarny Manitoba R0K1G0. Uh, you can also drop off a uh, check and put it in the offering box located in our church foyer. Of course, we are here in Manitoba. We're still dealing with uh, the height of the virus and, uh, and some uh, uh, hospital issues with, with patients filling up ICUs. And so uh, we're still dealing with that as a province here uh, and dealing with restrictions. However, we're thankful as a church that uh, the province health orders are still allowing for us to continue with drive-in services. And so uh, we're continuing with those as well here on Sunday mornings in our church parking lot at 1030 and uh, if you'd like to join us, uh, you're, you're free and we'd be happy to have you uh, join us here Sunday morning. We've been, uh, the past number of months, I've been doing baptism classes together with Alyssa Peters. And uh, we've been uh, uh, preparing for her baptism service on June 13th. And so um, we're continuing with targeting that date with the, the small wrinkle that we're going to be doing it outside uh, at our drive-in service uh, Alyssa was game. She didn't want to wait. And so we're going to continue with doing it outdoors. And uh, we hope to have a, a video recording of the service as well for those who aren't able to attend. And uh, so that we can all as a church family um, participate and, and celebrate with Alyssa as she is baptized in, uh, in her faith into the Lord. I was also just recently contacted uh, by Lee Friesen, the son of Art Friesen. And uh, he just recently moved back to Clarney. He grew up here, and he just recently moved back. And he, he contacted me and shared that uh, a few years ago, he had recommitted his life to the Lord, and that this past year, the Lord had really laid on his heart a desire to be baptized. And he didn't have a, a home church family. However, moving back here to Clarney, he remembered me from when he attended our church youth group many years ago. And so he reached out to me, and he, and he requested if I would baptize him. And so in discussion with him, uh, it was just great to see his sincere faith, his desire to be baptized. And so uh, he is also now preparing to be baptized that Sunday as well. And so let's keep Alyssa and Lee in our prayers as they prepare to take this important step of faith and obedience to be baptized. Now for uh, prayer items, uh, I have a, a sad item to share with you today. Uh, Abe Neufeldt. Uh, passed away in Brazil this past week. Uh, he passed away from COVID. Uh, his daughter, Abby, contacted me about a week ago saying that he had passed away. And so pray for his wife, Etienne, and his two daughters, Abby and Isabella. And so let's remember them uh, in this time of grief and loss on the passing of Abe Neufeld. Uh, on a happier note, uh, I want to express just praise, uh, prayers of praise for the protection of, of Maddie uh, Clausen and Olivia Harder. Uh, many of you will have heard that they were in a car accident this past week, uh, just south of Brandon. Uh, High-speed uh, collision with another vehicle, and thankfully, um, all the people involved, including uh, Olivia and Maddie, um, 
were, were okay. There's some, some injuries for Olivia. She has a fractured wrist and uh, some, some bruising and a, and a minor concussion, but everyone's okay. And so we're just so thankful as a church family for God's protection over them. So let's uh, unite our hearts in prayer. I would invite you to bow with me. And at the conclusion, I would invite you to pray with me the Lord's Prayer. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that in these times, even though our world is in upheaval, even though there is fear and chaos all around, we thank you that you are still in control. You are on your throne. You have not abdicated it to another. And that as we come to you, Father, we know that you have our lives in your hands and we have nothing to fear. So, Father, as your children, we come to you today. We ask that you would set our hearts at at rest and at peace in your presence as we come together in worship. Father, we thank you so much for your hand of protection over over Maddie and over Olivia uh, this past week, Lord. We know from from experience of how how deadly and how quickly uh, those types of accidents can, can claim lives. And so, Father, we thank you that that you put a hand of protection over them and that they are safe, they are well, and we just praise and thank you for that. Father, we lift up those who are grieving. We think of, of Abe Neufeld's family on his passing, Lord. Uh, it comes as a shock, and so we pray, Father, for his wife, Etienne. We pray for Abby, for Isabella. And, and Father, we just pray that you would comfort them, be near to them, strengthen them, and, and be with them. And likewise, Father, we, we pray for all those in our province, Lord, who are struggling with COVID. Uh, we ask that you would lay a healing touch on them. For those, Lord, who have lost loved ones due to this, we ask you'd be near to them, comfort them. We pray, Lord, for our healthcare workers who are, who are those on the front lines treating them and dealing with these circumstances. Give them strength, Lord, and perseverance. And ultimately, we pray, Lord, that we would come through uh, this on the other side and that uh, there will be better days ahead. And so we ask for this, Father. Lord, we thank you that in these days you are still calling those to yourself uh, to repent and be baptized. And we thank you, Lord, for those who are preparing now to be baptized. Thank you for Alyssa and for Lee, who you are uh, calling to the waters of baptism to be baptized in your name as your disciples, this outward sign of the inward reality of your salvation in their hearts, that you have washed them from their sin and that now they are ready to be publicly uh, declared that they are your followers. And uh, we thank you for that. So bless them as they prepare, Lord. We pray in advance for that service, that you would bless it. And uh, Father, that the testimony of your goodness in their lives would, would touch lives as well. And so we ask for that. Father, we continue to pray for our residents at Bayside across the street. Be near to them. Be especially with, with Marge Peters, Lord. Be with her. Uh, we pray, Father, for Turtle Mountain Bible Camp. Undertake for them in these days of uncertainty as they look ahead to camp ministry. And we pray that you would open the way for them. Lord, we pray for our leaders. We pray for our nation. We pray for our world, Lord, that you would guide us. And that, Father, even in these days of upheaval and of shaking, that there would be those who realize that in this world there is fear, there is, there is heartache, there is uncertainty, but that there is an answer. And the answer is you. And so we pray, Lord, that you would draw those to yourself, even in these times, who would be saved. Use our church to that end, Father. And even this morning, as the word goes out, may it not return void. Bless it, Lord, to those who hear. 
And so now I invite you to pray with me the Lord's Prayer. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, the power, and the glory, forever and ever. Amen. I invite you to take your Bibles and turn with me now to our scripture reading from Romans chapter 11. And there I will be reading the first 12 verses. Romans chapter 11 and verses 1 to 12. The Apostle Paul writes, I ask then, did God reject his people? By no means. I am an Israelite myself, a descendant of Abraham from the tribe of Benjamin. God did not reject his people whom he foreknew. Don't you know that what the scripture says in the passage about Elijah, how he appealed to God against Israel? Lord, they have killed your prophets and torn down your altars. I am the only one left and they are trying to kill me. And what was God's answer to him? I have reserved for myself 7,000 who have not bowed the knee to Baal. So too, at the present time, there is a remnant chosen by grace. And if by grace, then it is no longer by works. If it were, grace would no longer be grace. What then? What Israel sought so earnestly it did not obtain, but the elect did. The others were hardened, as it is written. God gave them a spirit of stupor, eyes so that they could not see, and ears so that they could not hear, to this very day. And David says, May their table become a snare and a trap, a stumbling block and a retribution for them. May their eyes be darkened so they cannot see, and their backs be bent forever. Again I ask, did they stumble so as to fall beyond recovery? Not at all. Rather, because of their transgression, salvation has come to the Gentiles to make Israel envious. But if their transgression means riches for the world and their loss means riches for the Gentiles, how much greater riches will their fullness bring? So far the reading of God's word. Would you bow with me once more? Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for its power. We thank you, Lord, that it is timeless through all ages and that just as it spoke to those first Roman church when Paul wrote it, it speaks to the church of Clarny and to the world today. So bless it, Father, to our hearts, open our ears that we might hear, hearts to receive and feet to follow in action. And so speak through me, your servant, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Now today we are continuing in our series in Romans, part 25, entitled, God is Not Finished with Israel. Ray Stedman was the pastor of a church in California for many years. He once went to visit a Jewish rabbi and said to them, said to him, I really want to understand the Old Testament the way that a Jewish rabbi understands the Old Testament. So the rabbi replied, well, that's simply impossible because you just cannot think like a Jew. Ray said, well, I think I can. Please help me now, and, and, I, and I'm sure I can. So the rabbi said, all right, I'll ask you three questions. If you can get these three questions correct, then you can think 
like a Jewish rabbi thinks. Question number one. Two men fall down a chimney. One of them comes out dirty. The other one comes out clean. Which of the two men washes himself? So Ray answered, well, that's pretty simple. The dirty one washes himself. The rabbi replied, wrong. See, you're not thinking right. What happens is the clean one looks at the dirty one and thinks that he is dirty. And the dirty one looks at the clean one and thinks that he is clean. So it's the clean one who washes himself. Ray said, oh, okay, I I think I'm getting it now. So the rabbi continued. All right, question number two. Two men fall down a chimney. One comes out clean, one comes out dirty. Which one washes himself? Ray answered, well, all right, the clean one. But the rabbi replied, wrong. What happens is that the clean one looks at the dirty one and says to the dirty one, you are dirty. And so the dirty one looks at himself, sees he is dirty, and so he cleans himself. Well, now Ray is getting quite confused, but the rabbi continued. Last question. Two men fall down a chimney. One comes out dirty, the other comes out clean. Which one cleans himself? Well, by this time, Ray doesn't know how to answer. So he just says, well, it's either both of them or neither of them. To which the rabbi replied, wrong. You are totally wrong. See, you're not thinking like a Jewish rabbi at all. The answer to that question is, first of all, entirely ridiculous and impossible because two men cannot fall down a chimney and one of them come out clean and the other come out dirty. It's impossible. So in the end, Ray Steadman walked away, shaking his head and said to himself, well, I guess I never will understand the Old Testament the way a Jewish rabbi understands it. And the thing that Pastor Stedman learned from that experience was that while the Jewish religious mind excels at studying and memorizing and dissecting the nuances of Scripture from every conceivable angle, what so often happened was that in the process, the primary truth of God's word was missed entirely. They got so caught up in looking at things, dissecting things, debating things, that the core truth was overlooked. We see many examples of this throughout Scripture. But by far the most grievous example of this error of the the Jewish religious mind was that even though the Jewish religious leaders, the Pharisees in particular, even though they knew every single prophecy concerning the Messiah, They had each one of them memorized backwards and forwards. Yet when Jesus actually came in the flesh, Emmanuel, God with them, they did not recognize him. For even though Jesus perfectly fulfilled every single messianic prophecy that they knew by heart, the Jews as a whole from the time of Christ, right up until this very day, remain spiritually blind to Jesus as their long-awaited Messiah. As we continue on in our series in Romans and into chapter 11 now, the Apostle Paul addresses this exact issue of Israel's ongoing rejection of Jesus as their Messiah. In Romans chapter 11 and verse 1, he opens the chapter with this pointed question. He writes, I ask then, did God reject his people? In other words, had Israel finally messed up so badly that God was finished with them forever. 
In a sense, the, the torch of faith that had been handed off to the Gentiles and now the Jews, were, were they just done with? Was God just kind of throwing them, pushing them to the side? And Paul immediately proceeds to answer his own question with the emphatic reply, by no means. He then proceeds to give his readers three proofs, three reasons as to why God is not finished with the nation of Israel. The first proof that Paul gives that God was not done with Israel was the personal proof of Paul himself. In verse 1, Paul continues, I am an Israelite myself, a descendant of Abraham from the tribe of Benjamin. So here, Paul is offering himself as living proof that as a Jewish follower of Jesus Christ, not all of Israel had been rejected by God. For remember that Jesus himself had met Paul on the road to Damascus when then he was still the Pharisee named Saul. And there on the road he blinded him, he humbled him, he called him to repent, to believe, and to follow him. And so what Paul was saying is that if you want proof that God has not rejected Israel, then just look at me. I'm living, breathing proof that God still desires to save Israel and that he's not finished with us just yet. The second proof that Paul offers, proof number two, is the historical proof of Elijah. Verse two, Paul writes, God did not reject his people whom he foreknew. Don't you know what the scripture says in the passage about Elijah? How he appealed to God against Israel. Lord, they have killed your prophets and torn down your altars. I am the only one left, and they are trying to kill me too. And what was God's answer to him? I have reserved for myself 7,000 who have not bowed the knee to Baal. So too, at the present time, there is a remnant chosen by grace. And so what Paul is referring to here is the time recorded back in 1 Kings chapter 19 that The prophet Elijah had won his victory on on Mount Carmel. The fire had come down from heaven. But following this, Queen Jezebel vowed to have Elijah killed. And so we see the prophet so demoralized, so distraught, that he runs away and he complains to God that he alone, of all of Israel, he alone was the only one left who remained faithful to God. But of course, we know the story. God graciously corrected Elijah and told him that far from being the last one left, far from being alone, he had in fact reserved a faithful remnant of 7,000 who had not bowed to Baal. 7,000 who still worshipped the one true God. And so what Paul was saying here was that just as God had preserved a faithful remnant in the darkest days of Israel's idolatry, in the days of King Ahab and Queen Jezebel, even in those dark days of apostasy, God had preserved a remnant. So too, in the darkest days of the Jewish national rejection of Jesus as their Messiah, even after they had crucified him, even after they had refused to repent when, when Peter preached so powerfully that, that you are the ones who have crucified your Messiah, even then God from Pentecost and on, preserved a small, faithful remnant of Jews who through the centuries would believe in Jesus and carry on the message of the gospel, just as Paul himself had. 
And so this is the historical proof. But now there is a third proof, the future proof of Israel's national salvation. For this proof, we have to jump all the way ahead in chapter 11 to verses 26 and 27. And don't worry, we're going to come back to the verses in between a little bit later. But there in in verse 26 of chapter 11, Paul writes of Israel's future. And he says this, And so all Israel will be saved. As it is written, the deliverer will come from Zion. He will turn godlessness away from Jacob. And this is my covenant with them when I take away their sins. And so here we see that Paul looked ahead and prophesied of a future day when all of Israel would repent, call upon Jesus as their Messiah, have their sins washed away, forgiven, and so be saved. Now take note that Paul was not talking about an individual Jew here. Nor was he talking about a small remnant of Jews. Instead, he was talking about the nation of Israel as a whole. And of that nation, he says, all Israel will be saved. Now, here, it stands to reason that in order for the nation of Israel to have a future day of repentance and salvation, that the nation itself would need to exist. And yet, We know, history tells us, that just a few years after Paul wrote this letter to the Romans, in the year 70 AD, the Roman army, led by General Titus, marched on Jerusalem. They were entirely fed up with the the Israelite zealots constantly trying to to fight against Rome, and so finally they said, we're going to wipe them out, we're going to annihilate them. And so they marched on Jerusalem. The historian Josephus gives us the account of how they besieged the city, There was a long, horrific siege. They finally captured the city. They razed it to the ground. They burned what remained. Not one stone was left standing on top of another, just as Jesus had prophesied. And whatever Jews survived this bloody siege and battle were then captured and taken away into slavery. And the rest of the nation was equally purged of any of Israel's people and influence. And what few survivors there were fled into the surrounding nations, the great diaspora, as they were flung out like dust into the wind. And the Romans then gave the Jews one final insult. After having purged them from the land, having destroyed Jerusalem, Zion, utterly, they then renamed the now desolate land of Israel after one of their worst historical enemies, the Philistines. The Philistines, or as we know the word today, Palestine. Palestine was derived from their worst enemies, the Philistines. And so the nation of Israel simply ceased to exist. Even their name had been changed to one of their enemies, the Philistines, Palestine. And so the nation was no more. And so how then could Paul say that at some point in the future, all of Israel nationally as a nation? How could he say that all of them would be saved if the nation simply does not exist? Well, theologians through the centuries wrestled over that question, and many of them came up with a spiritualized answer, saying that it was not physical Israel, but spiritual Israel that Paul and the other prophets talked about a future day of restoration and salvation. 
But then May 14, 1948 came along. And shockingly, surprisingly, miraculously, rising from the ashes of the Jewish Holocaust during World War II, the physical nation of Israel was reborn in a single day. And so right now, the fact is that no matter what you think about it or what anyone says about it, if today you pull out a modern map, any world map, and you look on it in the Middle East, there you will find on it the physical nation named Israel, right where it was 2,000 years ago. Exactly where it was. 2,000 years later, the nation was reborn. Now make no mistake about it. Even from a secular perspective, even if someone doesn't believe one word of the Bible, even secular scholars have to admit that the rebirth of the nation of Israel is unprecedented in history. Never before or since has an ancient nation that was conquered, destroyed, and dispersed to the winds 1,900 years earlier, never before have they gone back to their ancestral soil and successfully reformed their nation by the same name. And of this, Gary Fraser writes, You cannot find the ancient neighbors of the Jews anywhere. Have you ever met a Moabite? Do you know any Hittites? Are there any tours to visit the Ammonites? Can you find the postal code of a single Edomite? No. These ancient peoples disappeared from history and from the face of the earth. Yet the Jews, just as God promised, not only survived through those long centuries, but they returned as a people to their land. Indeed, the simple fact that the modern-day nation of Israel exists is a miracle of biblical proportions. And so today, in the time which we are living, this year of 2021, the single greatest proof that God is not finished with Israel is that after more than 1,900 years, the nation of Israel exists once more. And further still, it continues to exist despite being surrounded by enemies on all sides. Now, speaking of being surrounded by enemies, you may have noticed Israel on the news these past few weeks as they were bombarded by rockets fired by Hamas in the Gaza Strip. Now, of course, Israel is, is fighting back. And because for them, every war is a matter of survival, and this is nothing new. Back on May 15th, 1948, one day after the nation of Israel was reborn, just one day later, the surrounding nations of Egypt, Jordan, Syria, and Iraq all attacked the fledgling nation of Israel simultaneously. In this great coalition, they attacked as one from all sides, intent upon stamping out this new nation and casting the Jews into the sea. Vastly outnumbered, outgunned, and surrounded, the Israelis fought back for their very lives and for their existence. Very few in the world who watched around expected them to survive this onslaught, let alone win. They were vastly outnumbered in every single aspect. Numbers of soldiers, mechanized armor, um, aircraft, you name it, they were outnumbered in every single category. 
And yet against impossible odds, they survived and they won. Then in subsequent wars that followed, in the year 1967 and 1973, many more stunning and miraculous stories emerged of Israel winning against all odds over far greater and superior numbers of enemies around them. It was as though Israel's enemies were fighting against more than just men. Now, when Leanne and I visited Israel back in 2015, our Jewish tour guide named Rafi, he told us about some of these various events, of of all these miraculous victories that the modern-day Israelites had won in these battles. And he concluded by asking the question, how can you explain this except that it is a miracle? It is a miracle. And yet, as miraculous as it is, just as God's word prophesied thousands of years ago, today the simple fact is that the nation of Israel exists, and no one can quite explain it. Now, if you don't see the hand of God in that, then you had better open your eyes a little wider. Quite simply, God is not finished with Israel. But now, having said all of that, I've heard some people say, how can God have regathered and now be blessing Israel, even while as a nation they are currently still in a state of national unbelief? Well, the answer is given, us, given to us by God himself through the prophet Ezekiel. And in Ezekiel chapter 36 and verse 22, there we read, Therefore say to the house of Israel, this is what the sovereign Lord says, It is not for your sake, O house of Israel, that I am going to do these things, but for the sake of my holy name, which you have profaned among the nations where you have gone. Then verse 24. For I will take you out of the nations. I will gather you from all the countries and bring you back into your land. So God makes it clear that the people of Israel had done nothing to deserve God regathering them from the nations back into their own land. Nothing. In fact, he says, you have profaned my name amongst the nations. Their, their witness, their testimony had not been a good one. So therefore, it was not because of their good works, but rather for the sake of God's holy name and according to his grace that he did so, that he regathered them into their own land. Returning now to Romans 11, and we continue in verses 5 and 6, Paul here makes the same point when he writes this of Israel. So too, at the present time, there is a remnant chosen by grace. And if by grace, then it is no longer by works. If it were, then grace would no longer be grace. So here the second thing Paul is saying is that God's choice of Israel was never about them being good enough. It was always about God's grace. It was not of works. It was a work of grace. You see, some people have the mistaken idea that in the Old Testament, people were saved by their good works. And that in the New Testament, they are saved now by grace. But the fact is that salvation has always been by God's grace. It's not like God used to have a plan A of salvation by works that failed, and so then he had to quickly scramble and come up with a plan B of salvation by grace. That's not it at all. 
The Bible teaches us that Jesus Christ is the Lamb of God who was slain from before the foundation of the world. This was all part of God's eternal plan A from the very beginning. None of this caught God by surprise. It's always been plan A, and it always will be. As we've learned earlier in the book of Romans, the purpose of the law, the reason that the law of Moses was given to Israel, was not to save anyone by its works, but rather to act as a mirror to show the people just how hopelessly lost in sin they really were, how impossible it was for them to keep the whole law, and so therefore throw themselves upon God's mercy and his grace for their salvation. But sadly, Israel never quite got that. And so their legalistic pursuit of salvation by good works began, and it has continued on ever since. But who can keep God's whole law perfectly? Who can do it? For as James chapter 2, verse 10 tells us, To keep the whole law yet fail on just one point is to be guilty of breaking it all. So I ask, if Israel could not be good enough, then who can? Can you? Can anyone be good enough? Well, let me give you the example of Mother Teresa of Calcutta. That woman of God devoted most of her life to working with the hungry, dying people in Calcutta, India. She labored for many years in total obscurity before she became discovered and then received so much acclaim later in her life for her selfless devotion to the poor. Now, many people assume that if anyone could be good enough and do enough works to earn their salvation, then certainly it must have been Mother Teresa. And yet, when later on in her life, someone once asked Mother Teresa the question, How can you do all of these good works that you do? Mother Teresa's reply was, It's not my works. It is only by the grace of God that I can get out of bed in the morning. Now I want you to think about that. It is not my works. It is only by the grace of God that I can get out of bed in the morning. Think about that. Can anyone listening today honestly say that they've done more good works than Mother Teresa? Who would be so bold? And yet, even she, who had done so much in her life, even she humbly understood that it was only by the grace of God that she could do anything at all. You see, her faith was not in her works, for she recognized that they were not her works at all, but rather God's works done through her, because of his grace at work in her life. In Philippians chapter 3 and verse 3, the Apostle Paul wrote this, It is we who serve God by his Spirit, who boast in Christ Jesus, and who put no confidence in the flesh. No confidence in the flesh. You see, none of us should put any confidence in our flesh or in our works whatsoever only and solely in the grace of God, for it is only by his grace shown to us through Christ that we are saved. For if there were any work that we needed to add, then grace would no longer be grace. 
And so just as Israel was regathered from the nations and put back on her own soil by the grace of God, and will one day experience a national revival by the grace of God, so too we as Gentiles are only brought to repentance and salvation by the grace of God. It is not of works, and it never has been. It wasn't for Israel, and it's not for us. So therefore, whether Jew or Gentile, no one can boast in themselves. Our only boast is in our Lord Jesus Christ. He alone is the one that we can boast of, for he has done it all. And now lastly, there are some who might wonder, why then did God choose Israel if he knew beforehand that they were going to be so rebellious and hard-hearted and stiff-necked and end up rejecting and killing their own Messiah? Why would he choose such a people? Well, proceeding on into Romans 11 and verse 11, Paul addresses that exact issue when he writes, Again I ask, did they stumble so as to fall beyond recovery? Not at all. Rather, now listen to this, rather because of their transgression, salvation has come to the Gentiles to make Israel jealous. So you see, it was principally because of Israel's national rejection of Jesus, because of their transgressions, that the message of the gospel was forced to spread beyond the borders of Israel and into the Gentile world around it. You see, God, of course, foreknew this. He foreknew how Israel was going to respond and act towards their Messiah. And in his wisdom, he chose Israel accordingly in order that his purposes would prevail, that the gospel would go to the nations. And yet, having been used for that purpose, would God then discard Israel into the trash bin of history? Well, you've served your purpose. You're, you're dead to me now. Would God do that to Israel? No, not at all. Verse 12 continues. But if their transgression means riches for the world, and that's the riches of the gospel, and their, and their loss means riches for the Gentiles, how much greater riches will their fullness bring? So Paul is saying, if, if even in this, that, that in their transgression, it brought the riches of the gospel to the world, how much more wouldn't the riches of the gospel being embraced by Israel bring glory to Israel and riches to their glory in the future? For you see, God had a plan for Israel every step of the way through their long and often painful history. And despite their rejection of him, God never rejected them. And he has a, pl a plan for Israel's present protection and also for their future salvation. When someday they will look upon him whom they pierced and they will mourn. They will repent and finally believe in Jesus as their Messiah. Now there may be some of you listening today who feel that perhaps like Israel, you've failed badly. Perhaps you feel like you've sinned so much and rejected God for so long that he simply would not take you back. That, that you've just rejected him for too long and so God has rejected you. Well, let me just tell you, 
that if even ancient Israel in the rejection of Jesus did not stumble so far as to fall beyond the reach of God's mercy and grace, then neither have you. If God could take Israel back after all they had done and say one day, not only am I going to restore you in your land, which he has already done, but I am going to reveal myself to you. The spirit of power and supplication will come upon you. You will look upon me. You will mourn. You will repent. And as the nation, you will be saved. If God does that for Israel, how much more is God not ready and willing to do that for each one of us? He is so ready No matter what we've done, no matter where we've been, no matter how far we've fallen from his grace, he is ready by his grace right now to forgive, to cleanse, and to restore us unto himself. One of the world's most beloved paintings is Rembrandt's The Return of the Prodigal Son. It's on display at the Hermitage Museum in St. Petersburg, Russia. Imagine with me now for a moment that some men decided to break into that museum during a a night of drunken revelry in order to deface various pieces of what they deemed boring art. Completely oblivious to the value of Rembrandt's painting, they rip it off the wall. They slash the painting diagonally from uh, from the frame corner to corner, leaving it with ragged uh, tears and threads showing at the edges. They then throw it to the ground, pour beer over it, stomp on it, leaving muddy boot prints all over it. And there, what was once a priceless masterpiece has been reduced to nothing more than trash. Deemed to be no longer worthy to be on display, this vandalized painting is now put up for auction. And people from all over the world come to bid on this once masterpiece for either bragging rights or simply sentimental value of owning a Rembrandt. Then imagine with me for a moment that Rembrandt himself were still living. And seeing and hearing about what has happened to his masterpiece, he is furious and aghast at the complete disregard for what is esteemed to have been the pinnacle of his life's work. So he sends his representative to the auction to reclaim the painting, And when the representative arrived, he encountered men and women who could only see the painting in its present form, bedraggled, disheveled, limply hanging from a frame that it once proudly filled out, hardly recognizable from its original glory. As such, they were bidding a pittance on the work, outdoing one another by only a few dollars here and a few dollars there. But Rembrandt's representative... He had clear instructions from the artist himself, and the room grew silent as he boldly bid for the full value of the painting's estimation from before it had been vandalized. It was an astronomical sum of millions of dollars. The room was hushed in awe at the great price that had been bid. The silence was then broken by the auctioneer's gavel, And Rembrandt's representative walked out of the room with the painting and returned it to the artist. As Rembrandt gazed at his once perfect masterpiece, his heart was filled with fury and with sorrow. And yet, although he was not blind to the slashed canvas, the ground-in mud, the odor of stale beer, in his mind's eye he could still see the painting 
as it once was in its original glory. And so he began to painstakingly restore the painting, weaving together the painting along the slash line with almost imperceptible thread. Although a faint crease like a scar now traversed what had once been immaculate, he painstakingly cleansed the mud from the canvas, and where the paint had been distorted by spilt beer, he matched the hues from memory. Then, after many, many long hours of laborious work, he finally stood back, sweat pouring from his brow, and smiled. His representative then came into the room and quietly admired the restored masterpiece. He then finally declared, Although I believe in the vision you shared with me and was willing to pay the full price to restore this painting back to you, I can see it now. The painting restored is even more beautiful now than when you first painted it. My friends, this is the story of the gospel. For just as God is not finished with Israel, just as God has said, you have not fallen so far that I will not yet restore you to greater glory and splendor than you ever had in the first place, just as God has promised and will do that for Israel, so too, my friends, God will do it for you. He is not finished with you yet. So may each of us put our faith and hope in him alone and allow his grace to produce the masterpiece that he intends for each one of us as we are transformed and conformed into the image of Christ, his son. Amen. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your grace. We thank you that by it we are saved and by it alone. Father, there is not one work we can add, for if there were, grace would no longer be grace. But we thank you that we see in Israel the story of ourselves. That, Lord, though they were stiff-necked, rebellious, hard-hearted people, who, though they rejected you so often, and even went so far as to have their Messiah crucified. Father, we thank you that they did not fall so far that in your infinite grace you did not have a plan yet for their restoration and for their salvation as a nation. And so, Father, as we see this prophecy even being fulfilled in our own time before our very eyes, we thank you, Lord, that it mirrors the great reality that through Israel you brought the gospel to the world. All of us, Lord, Gentiles as well as the Jews, that we have heard the message of salvation through faith alone, by grace alone, in Christ alone. And we thank you that we have received this message and that by faith we can be restored to you, our Father, and that you are even now making us into the image of Christ, your Son. And so, Father, we thank you that you are doing this on so many levels, nationally in the world and personally in our lives. And so, Father, may salvation flow in our town, in our nation, and in our world. And we pray, Father, that we will be found in you, fully restored by your grace. In Jesus' name, amen. May God bless you richly, and Lord willing, we'll see you again next week.